the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, when dining with that sleazy looking pusball alien ambassador from the Galactic People's Republic, we humbly suggest you avoid that dish called Long Pig. Contested opinions on legendary swords, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Susan R. Matthews, the author of Crimes Against Humanity. This is book eight in the Under Jurisdiction Science Fiction series. Susan has been working on this series for over two decades, and it is a rich, wonderful, and somewhat dark, far-future space opera she's constructed filled with deep and excellent characters revolving around Andre Kosciusko, who used to be a judicial fleet torturer on a spaceship, but he has become part of the rebellion and upheaval that's come to the repressive jurisdiction. He's a very winning, complex main character. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, the space groundhog saw his shadow from the always burning stars out there and went back into his asteroid for a few millennia, so it may be cold for a while, but the February contest is still underway. Now, in Larry Correa's Saga of the Forgotten Warrior series, Ashok Vidal wields a powerful ancestor sword called Angra Vidal. From Excalibur to Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber, swords have featured heavily in some of our favorite stories, which got us thinking. What is your favorite legendary sword or edged weapon from science fiction or fantasy? Tell us what it is and why for a chance to win a signed copy of House of Assassins by Larry Correa. Give us a paragraph or so on your choice and email it to contest at bain.com with the words February contest in the subject line. The winner will receive a copy of House of Assassins, which is the sequel to Son of the Black Sword. It's in hardcover now, and this one will be signed by Larry Korea himself. You can find out all the details on the contest at Bane.com. So make it a swordtastic February and get your entries in. I want to welcome Susan R. Matthews back to the podcast. Hello, Susan. <laughs> Hi, Tony. Susan R. Matthews was raised in a military family and spent her younger years living around the globe in a myriad of places, including Germany, both coasts of the U.S. and India, often cut off from television and other media. Ah, oh, the dire horror of it. She read voraciously. Her first encounters with science fiction came via classics such as iRobot and Stranger in a Strange Land. And Susan's debut novel, An Exchange of Hostages, was the first entry in her critically acclaimed under-jurisdiction series that was nominated for a Philip K. Dick Award. She was also a finalist for the John W. Camel Award for Best New Writer. There are now seven, though, how many novels do we have in under-jurisdiction now? Well, this is eight. This is this eight. This will be eight. Um, the first six are collected in Omnibus Editions, Fleet Inquisitor and Fleet Renegade, and then we have uh, Fleet uh, Insurgent, 
the uh, the third, which collects everything else that is um, Andre Kosciuszko. The newest entry in the series, is, and these are all out from Bain as as omnibus editions. The newest entry in the series is Crimes Against Humanity, and it is out at booksellers everywhere. Susan lives in Seattle with her wife Maggie and two delightful dogs. She is a U.S. Army veteran. Uh, she served as operations and security officer uh, of a combat sport hospital while she was in the, the Army, and she is also a avid ham radio operator. So, Crimes Against Humanity, Susan. Um, the uh, Andre's come a long way, right, since, uh, since <laughs> an exchange of hostages in both his personal character and how far he's come physically. <laughs> It's it's kind of uh, kind of one of those what a long strange trip it's been situations. Um, well, as you said, uh, let let me just talk about uh, uh, how we got uh, here from there. Um, as you said, the series is called Under, Under Jurisdiction, and it's set in an intergalactic space confederation of worlds that while harshly authoritarian is neither monolithic nor homogenous, there's a lot of varieties of ways to uh, deal with the uh, the overlords, as it were, uh, under jurisdiction. Uh, jurisdiction spaces as a concept started out, uh, it was founded so long ago that people have almost forgotten that it started out as a uh, an organization for the regulation of trade and management of trade between world families. Uh, it retains the framework of its origins, uh, which were uh, to ensure fair, equitable trading relationships, generating taxable income, and focused on the rule of law and the judicial order. I sometimes uh, uh, invite people to consider jurisdiction as what might happen if uh, a tricameral government uh, such as the one uh, that our founders envisioned, um, shook apart the judicial branch, took over the government, and then went increasingly out of its mind. Um, so unfortunately, mm. <laughs> yep. yeah, you know, and I just stopped to think, and that was, you know, that's that's been 30 or 40 years ago that that was my concept, so... Uh, it, it bears no particular uh, reference to immediate current events because uh, this is kind of what I had in mind a long time ago. Um, yeah. So started out as kind of sort of approximately uh, a, uh, a trade regulation organization and a jurisdiction fleet. You could think of it uh, as having originally been something like a Coast Guard. But unfortunately, things didn't stop there. They never do. But uh, stuff continued to grow and change as the size and the complexity of jurisdiction, uh, you know, the rule of law and the judicial order. It, it got bigger and bigger and more complex as it expanded to encounter other world families and other um, cultures uh, based on their own particular um, uh, mores. Uh, so things have gotten ugly in the uh, mailed hand and iron boot department. At the same time, tools that jurisdiction has developed uh, to ensure the regulation of trade and the uh, uh, predictability of tax revenue streams and so on and so forth, uh, the tools that don't work 
they're modified or discarded, they're replaced with new and more efficient tools. Uh, so at the time of these novels, uh, the authoritarian power and the dictat dictatorial controls of the individual judiciaries are being subverted or improved by various business interests and shareholder groups looking for their own autonomous niches within worlds under jurisdiction. Well, one of the things that unfortunately starts to happen uh, when a culture or a society start to change, well, let me do that one again, because actually what I want to say is one of the things uh, that happens inevitably in a culture or society that starts to change uh, is that change can come piling up on itself with astonishing speed. I think that the recent social history of the United States is kind of an example about how quickly um, our cultural um, uh, idioms, maybe, uh, can, can change and how quickly. So that's what, kind of what's been happening in the under-jurisdiction novels. Um, and at the same time, uh, there's in, been increasing development in in kind of a no-man's land that's called Gone Beyond Space, which has long escaped any meddling from jurisdiction because there's just no population centers that are big enough to make taxation pay, uh, and there aren't any markets worth mentioning, and it uh, simply isn't a value-added proposition for the jurisdiction to try to go into Gone Beyond. So Gone Beyond is the perfect place for people to escape from the controls of jurisdiction, and uh, to try and build communities of their own based on their own different models of social organization. So, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like lighting out for the territories, right, when you go to Gondwana. That's right. Uh, you're, you're too small to matter, so you can do what you want. Uh, so by the time we get to the current novel, Crimes Against Humanity, uh, I find Andre as part of this brave new world under under construction. Um, one of the polities in Gone Beyond Space is a, uh, a community that readers of previous novels will have met with in um, the novel called Angel of Destruction. These are the uh, Langzurich Space Pirates. And the Langzurich Space Pirate Coalition in Gone Beyond Space it is on its way to bringing uh, the various different uh, raiders and self-defense forces and smugglers even together as a political organization uh, in Gambian, starting out by policing some of the bad things that can happen in a no-man's land, uh, slaving for one, and land grabs and things of that sort. So... My protagonist, Andre, Andre Kosciusko, he's everything the jurisdiction stands for, really, uh, but gone slightly askew. <laughs> I, I mentioned the uh, authoritarian, dystopian governments. Uh, yeah, one of the most high-profile social controls is the system of inquiry, which is institutionalized torture as an instrument of state. Uh, inquisitors have to be specially licensed by judicial warrant. Uh, the protocols uh, can be administered only by trained and qualified doctors. Uh, and Andre used to be an inquisitor. He was good at it. 
He enjoyed it altogether too well, which is where the major kink in his personality comes in. But at the same time, he was firmly convinced that he ought not to be enjoying it. Uh, So Andre's been committing his own acts of subversion and sabotage from the get-go, contributing to the destabilization of the judicial order, even possibly becoming in his own small way a focus. Uh, for a resistance of sort, sorts. Yeah. He started small. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Go on. Uh, yeah, he started small uh, in the first novel of the series, uh, an exchange of hostages, twenty uh, some years ago. Uh, Andre was fresh out of surgical college, uh, sent to the euphemistically named Fleet Orientation Station Medical. Doesn't that sound innocuous? to learn how to inflict torture according to the strict rules and requirements requirements of the the judicial protocols. And that's where Andre started his subversive career by snatching a man who was due to suffer what amounted to a sentence of death by slow torture away from the judicial mandate uh, to place him firmly under Andre's personal protection with astonishing arrogance, and I like that in a man. Uh, and that, the, the, the person uh, that Andre uh, kind of took away from jurisdiction in that novel is um, a bond and voluntary security slave named Jocelyn Curran, who uh, is one of my favorite characters, and that's why I'm calling him out uh, by name here. But it only got worse from there. Uh, in the next novel, Prisoner of Conscience, Andre made a stink of world-class proportions out of a flamboyant public expose of murder and torture at a major bench prison that made him really, really popular with the judicial administration that was associated with that prison that really thinks that he ought to have written them a nice note and kept his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre assassinated... So he's still paying for what, for, for some of that stuff with, um, yeah. That's right. Some of the attitudes of the people around him in Gambion right now, right? Yeah. Um, he he gets a lot of slack in Gambion for what he did at the Domit prison. Um, there are a lot of people in Gambion with really really good reasons to see him to want to see him dead. Um, but he's in Gambion as kind of the like the involuntary guest of uh, Safe Haven, uh, where you have a bunch of new rail refugees. Um, now, was that, that, that was involved with the prison, right? The, the dominant prison stuff was, was new rails. Or am I thinking of another book? Uh, nope, nope. You're exactly uh, dead on there in Prisoner of Conscience. It was the Domit prison was, um, was specifically associated with uh, the um, death by overwork of specifically new rail um, prisoners. And so at the Domit prison, Andre killed a lot of, um, of new rail uh, prisoners. At the same time, the fact that he shut the whole place down gives him a little bit of credence in the eyes of the survivors. So uh, at the end of Warring States, between the end of Warring States and the beginning of the novel 
blood enemies, Andre has become the involuntary guest of Safe Haven Medical Center, which is run by Nurel, uh, who have um, granted him hospitality in the former formal Nurel sense, uh, which means that since we have more reason, more standing, as it were, to kill Andre Kosciusko, nobody else gets to kill him before we do. And if we had, then the rest of you simply have to wait in line until we get to that. In a sense, it's kind of slightly approximately the situation in the Mikado, where the residents of the Japanese prefecture have decided that the way in which to prevent uh, the Lord High Executioner from killing citizens on relatively frivolous uh, grounds is to assign the job to a man already under sentence of death. So that man can't execute anybody else until he's executed himself. Uh, that actually wasn't in my mind when I started this novels, but started these novels. But now that I think about it, it might be considered to be roughly analogous to that situation when I look at Andre in uh, uh, in Safe Haven. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there Andre is in Safe Haven. I would like to backtrack slightly to mention that. Uh, uh, the uh, second to the last most flamboyant thing that Andre has done is still a secret, more or less. Uh, he assassinated his own commanding officer, uh, the only crime for which Andre himself can be executed. Uh, he assassinated Captain Loudon, uh, corrupt and sadistic fleet Captain Loudon, and then he got a bench specialist, uh, which is a special agent with powers of extraordinary discretion, to cover for him. But his luck was bound to run out sooner or later, and by the time that Crimes Humanity takes place, Andre has become a deserter and a mutineer, not to mention a crushing embarrassment to his family. And he's hiding out, as we've discussed, in Gambian space as the <laughs> involuntary guest of its medical center. Now, um, now, right here in Crimes Against Humanity, there's a war on. Uh, there's the Langzurich Coalition that's uh, formed out of people who have an instinct to, prevent, to uh, protect the undefended from unjust exploitation because, um, among other reasons, that's why they're all there in the first place to escape um, exploitation. Uh, and it's this bunch of people against uh, entrenched criminal cartels that are t- taking advantage of the lack of regulation in Gambian space to deal in drugs and illegal entertainments and child prostitution and slavery and unsavory things of that nature. So as the action of the of the novel actually opens in Crimes Against Humanity, uh, we are finding Andre, he's in an active conflict on the ground war zone. He's supporting a field hospital outside a city that's under sea, siege, the city of Kuverain. Um, and there's there's a new sheriff, um, I mean to say, a new surgeon general in town, uh, who turns out to be someone to whom Andre regularly lost largest 
sums of money in their student days. Uh, Andre's, uh, the fact that Andre is simply not very good at cards uh, was considered to be one of his uh, better qualities when he was a student at the Mayan uh, Surgical College, uh, and he was always pretty good sport about it. Uh, the, it, the friendship that Andre had with this guy, um, uh, Joji Gascaron, uh, originally broke over Andre's choice to go into Inquisition, and he and his friend Joji haven't seen each other since, so neither of them knows quite what to make of the other after all these years, but they're going to have to work together and come to some kind of a relationship. Uh, and then there's a displaced ship's inquisitor, somebody that we have maybe loved to hate, who turns up, he's between jobs, and his mission is to collect Andre for a peculiar oligarch's private zoo. Uh, the inquisitor is Daniel Pefisk. Uh He's the man who abused and tortured the man that Andre still loves, uh, the now-dead Bond and Voluntary Security slave Jocelyn Curran, who was very important to the action in an exchange of hostages. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's, or, or, or as far as I hope, or I hope, that there's plenty more to read and enjoy in Crimes Against Humanity. Uh, so the situations continue to evolve, and there's um, some people that are from Andre's past that we know. There's some people that we don't know. Um, I think that the emotional heart of the novel may be the point at which Andre and one of his uh, compatriots uh, run into a splinter sect from their their home world of uh, rather extreme religious uh, cultists. Yeah. Well, let's one moment before we uh, let's let's make it clear that all right. So, Andre has been recruited to be a doctor for the Langsriks as they attack a slaving stronghold and a group of slaving uh, somebody that that is trying to buy and sell slaves on two planets, and on the second planet they encounter this group that you're about to tell us about. Yeah, um, Andre, uh, Andre has been loaned out by the New Rail. Uh, when the Langsdorff Coalition put together their uh, commando to um, uh, destroy the, uh, a headquarters of a criminal cartel in, that is located currently in Kuverain, um, all of the uh, people that uh, the Langsdorff reached out to contributed resources and in this context, as far as everybody's concerned, Andre is one of the resources that the New Rail have contributed to the cause uh, in his capacity as a physician. Yeah, because in addition to being, a, in addition to being a, a torturer, he is actually an extremely good uh, surgeon. That that is so. He is an extremely good surgeon under jurisdiction, and that means that. In Gambiand, where there are practically no surgeons, he is even more valuable uh, as a medical officer. Uh, that is the other reason, or the other primary reason, why he isn't dead yet. Uh, no matter how many people would really, really like to see him dead, he is in uh, the position of simply being too useful 
uh, Gone Beyond has no surgeons, um, or, or not a lot of them. Um, and part of the fun that I had with this novel is a character that I know and love named Carol Vogel, one of the bench intelligence specialists, has got an idea in his mind to find in Gone Beyond the makings of a new form of government to become the next judiciary, a, a, an autonomous political government. And so Carol Vogel has been uh, moving within the formal under-jurisdiction judiciaries to recruit people who are finding themselves out of a job or looking for a better one, to recruit uh, medical personnel and everybody else that he thinks they need in Gambiand, uh to uh, throw up their lives under jurisdiction and head out into Gambian space to be part of this of the new uh, government that Carol thinks needs to happen. Um, so Andre's already in Gambian, and he's operating as a as a doctor, as a surgeon. So he is at Couverain for the uh, formal attack on the part of the Langsrick Coalition against the nerve center, as it were, of a criminal cartel. Uh, As that attack uh, comes to a successful completion, um, they find out that uh, some of the criminal cartels are holding merchandise in nearby systems. One of those cartels that they especially want to get uh, is a very successful um, widespread criminal co- criminal organization that deals a lot in slaves. And slavery is a particular sore point for people in Gambian. So uh, as the action of the novel continues, uh, the good guys find out that some of the bad guys are holding uh, slaves in a holding camp that they're calling, imaginatively enough, holding. And so um, because Andre and his people are associated with an extremely fast courier, uh, and because Andre is a, um, a seasoned battle surgeon by this point, Andre and some of his people, uh, who used to be his security under jurisdiction, head out for holding to find out what's what. There are indications that holding has been abandoned but that the slaves on holding have not been abandoned. So potentially you've got a, an enslaved population in, in uh, basically uh, slave pens, and the people who are making sure that those people got fed and clothed and watered and all that kind of stuff, they've split uh, with, without making any uh, uh, considerations or accommodations or allowances for the fact that they've got all these people locked up in cells here without anybody to make sure that uh, the ventilation systems stay on and that the water's still running and things like that. Um, And they don't know exactly what they're going to find there, and they hope that they don't find a bunch of dead people. And fortunately, they don't find a bunch of dead people. But unfortunately uh, for Andre and for uh, Lekarenko, who is a uh, who is of the same ethnic subspecies as Andre is, one of the things they find uh, at Holding is a population of old believers from uh, the shared ethnicity that uh, 
Andre and Lekarenko both uh, have in common. And these old believers make great slaves in one sense, and that is that they are passive. They won't resist. They will accept any amount of imposition and physical suffering as proof that God loves them. Um, in, uh, in terms of Andre and Lek, they're really weird because they still think of God in the masculine sense. And it is, uh, it is the, uh, it is the, it, it, under religious definition for Andre and Lek, if you're going to be religious, uh, God has been female since, uh, since a long, long time ago. So one of the weird things about these people is that they think of God in the masculine sense. And another one of the things about these people, uh, this small population of old believers, is that they, they have absolutely no mercy on themselves. And um, one of the things that they have done to each other uh, in response to the situation in which they have found themselves um, is something that horrifies Andre more than almost anything he has ever seen in his life. Um, and I personally think that that is, uh, in a sense, possibly the emotional core of Crimes Against Humanity. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's uh, it, it it's it's both pathetic and sad and at the same time yeah horrifying and and the they have to our characters have to deal with it um and there's there's other factors then um in play as well because um that that jerk daniel is um is not above using these poor people for his own ends which is which is going on so tell us um Tell, uh, first of all, maybe go into a little bit more. So, th because of the main characters are all freed, the main characters around Andre are freed, bond, and voluntaries. They're free men now. Um, what was that relationship like, and why are they still hanging out with this guy who was who was uh, not exactly their boss, but uh, um, they were created specifically in order to do anything and everything. Any officer told them to do and to do it right now, uh, to do it immediately, do it perfectly, and to never give any sign of hesitation or reluctance. Uh, so, sure, let's talk about bonded voluntaries is what they're called. Um, at the point at which my novels take place, the whole system of inquiry and institutionalized torture and so on and so forth it's been getting worse and worse within recent history. The whole system itself is actually not that old in terms of um, people's living memories. And, uh, for instance, Andre's father. Uh, when Andre's father was in security, um, what it meant to uh, uh, put the heat on somebody was to... Uh, go upside his head with a two by four out behind the Dempsey dumpster, uh, if you were, if you will. Uh, in other words, um, as complicated and as brutal as it got was a back alleys beating. I'm not, I'm not implying that a back alleys beating is not brutal and horrible, but it's nothing like the uh, the precisely calibrated degrees of the question and the uh, array of tools of torture that have been developed as 
as time has gone by. And the there 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 are two things or two uh, characteristics of the system that both grow out of the fact that um, on average, on balance, the number of people that you can find in a general population that don't mind doing absolutely horrific things to people is uh, it's a very small percentage. Um, such people are actually rather few and far in between, uh, and they, uh, if they are uh, more normal uh, people who get drafted into the job, you'll find that they burn out quickly. Um, there's plenty of um, pr- there's plenty of real time examples. Uh, there are altogether too many real time examples of how that works in, in our per- in our um, uh, current affairs here and now. So the problem that the jurisdiction had was how do we how do we create um, hands for an inquisitor to use to do horrible things to other people when the number of people who will do such things of their own volition um, is a very small one. And the answer was, well, you find a criminal and you find a criminal who has been or is in danger of being condemned to death. And you offer that criminal a choice between being flamboyantly murdered, uh, along with all of that person's friends, family, uh, the uh, newspaper delivery man, the guy that uh, runs the corner store, and everybody else whose name somebody who is being horrifically tortured can bring up uh, to try and make it all stop. Uh, so you give a criminal a choice between dying himself and being the cause of the deaths of all of the widening circles of names that people will name, or you give them the choice of serving an inquisitor for 30 years um, with a uh, guarantee of their behavior, which is uh, the governor. The governor is a, is a semi-organic uh, implant in a person's brain. It's got linkages into the pain centers in a person's brain. The governor is calibrated to respond to specific stress states. And those specific stress states are then conditioned for each bond involuntary so that if a bond involuntary does the steps, steps a, a centimeter out of parameters in terms of respectful behavior and uh, complete and immediate compliance uh, and everything else that you need uh, to place at an inquisitor's disposal, uh, you have conditioned that bond involuntary to experience stress. Oh, my God, I know that this is not quite right. And the minute the governor uh, senses that particular stress state, uh, it is going to go, I think the term is totally medieval, uh, on a bond involuntary. Life is not worth living. Um, so you have a class of bond involuntary security slaves. They're bond involuntary because they're wearing governors in their brains that, um, that uh, strictly regulate their behavior. And the carrot, it's a really, really, really big stick 
with a relatively small carrot, but that carrot is if you accept this contract and you have to accept it and say, oh, yes, it's prudent and proper, just and judicious that it should be so, then the first thing that happens is you don't have to name any names. Uh, Nothing that you say will be taken uh, into the record Nothing that you say will be used against anybody that you know and love. Two, if you make it to 30 years, then at the end of 30 years, we will remove the governor. We will provide remedial um, deconditioning. Uh, You will become a a free person, a citizen. Uh, You will get your back pay for 30 years of performance and grade with interest. Uh, you will be fully invested in your pension and your medical insurance and so on and so forth. And you will also gain some special rights that are not available to anybody else under jurisdiction. One of those is you don't pay any taxes. One of those is uh, you are not subject to any of the legal codes of, uh, of where you're living. Uh, there's there's very little that you can do that's against the law, uh, as a matter of fact. And, and there's some other little things like uh, uh, in the one of the novellas that's printed in the Bain Omnibus Fleet Insurgent. Uh, there's a point at which uh, my security uh, security chief Stillnine encounters uh, a reborn man. Um, and when a Bonton voluntary who has reached the end of his term and is reborn, as it is said, comes into the room, policemen, security people, all those they stand up. Uh, so if you can if you can survive it somehow, then you do get a carrot. Yeah, but all you have to do is be a slave for thirty years and help torturers <laughs> destroy people. <laughs> So, uh, so we have a crew um, in uh, in the novel under jurisdiction Warring States, which is in the second Bain Omnibus Fleet uh, Renegade, I think. Uh, it's a novel called Warring States. In that novel, Andres made the decision that he is going to pull the governors of all of his bond and voluntaries, and he is going to get them out of there. Uh, he has he is plugged into the uh, Secret Service of the Dolgaruki Church, and he can get his bond and voluntaries into Gone Beyond where they will be safe. And that was part of the action in Warring States. And when Andre sent those people into Gone Beyond, Security Chief Stillnine, who had been their boss, kind of like their interface between Andre and the bond and voluntaries, he figures that those guys are going to need help because they are not going to have the benefit of the deconditioning, reconditioning process to teach them how to be free men and so forth. So he ups and goes too. And that's what those guys are doing in Gone Beyond Space and still together as a team. Uh, the Bond and Voluntaries are together as a team because they are all each other have, and they have been working together as a team in, a, in a, a, an especially intimate one for several years. And still nine is there because he knows that Andre loves those people and he loves Andre. And so he is going to do his best to make sure that people that Andre loves are going to survive and thrive. 
Uh, and while they're out there, they, um, that secret service of the Dolgariki Church has got that beautiful little elite courier. And um, I won't go into all the details because they are implanted and developed uh, to one degree or another within several different novels. But um, the malcontent decides that the single best use they can make of the Kospodar Thula, which is the courier ship, is to get it crewed by those bond and voluntaries. Uh, in another of the under-jurisdiction novels, we have seen what Let Karenko, for instance, the pilot, can do with that courier ship, and he is capable of doing wonderful things with it. So the crew has proved themselves as being uh, the best possible crew for that really expensive little machine. Um, and it gives that crew a way to stay together as a crew and for other people to leave them alone. And if they start to feel stressed, they can just get in the courier and leave. Um, and I hope that that long uh, discourse answers the question, Tony, of who those people are and what a bond and voluntary security slave is, and why they're still all together in Gambiant. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so let's talk about the bad guys momentarily. <laughs> who, who um, uh, particularly, um, you, you wrote this great story that is the setup um, of, of who ultimately is behind Daniel Prefit the uh, nasty uh, freelance inquisitor who shows up. Um, uh, and this guy is, is, a, is a really messed up strange bird, right? Um, that would be Chancellor Witt. Isn't he just? Oh, I get the biggest kick out of him. And one of the things I get the ultimately biggest kick out of uh, with Chancellor Witt is that um, one gets to the very end of the novel and Chancellor Witt will throw a, a spanner into the works and um, uh, reveal that there is something going on that one has not had the opportunity to uh, discover during the course of the novel. That was a lot of fun. But before you get there, you've got Chancellor Witt. You call him Chancellor uh, throughout the novel because he has a position of uh, total respectability. Uh, uh, he's a civic servant at uh, Hasprzak Judiciary. He makes huge contributions to all of the appropriate social causes, such as the upkeep of the tremendously uh, uh, popular, uh, famous uh, Jelisar Gardens, the pride of Hasprzak Judiciary. And at the same time, carefully uh, segregated, very carefully protected and walled off, Chancellor Witt uh, enjoys the, um, the running, the authority, the ownership of a criminal cartel. So at the, at the same time, he's a perfectly respectable, respectable civil servant, um, although he isn't fooling anybody. And, uh, and the, the man who controls a, one of the large criminal cartels under jurisdiction, although to be fair, uh, Wit is most strongly identified with interests shared between Hasperzak Judiciary and, and Gambian Space. Um, <laughs> and 
and, and wit. Uh, wit comes from a from an ethnicity that's generally speaking the body type is um, a kind of of the barrel chested format. Uh, most of the uh, guys have got curly brown hair. Uh, most of them have got lovely uh, brown green eyes, um, and they're just generally rather an attractive people. But um, they don't look anything like Andre Kosciusko and Wit for precise reasons that kind of escape me. Uh, became completely obsessed by Andre Kosciusko uh, in his earlier years. You know, kind of joined the Andre Kosciusko fan club. Yeah, well, he was watching those uh, illicit videos that the captain was making of Andre's torture sessions. That's right. And so he became sort of a torture fanboy. Yeah, it's kind of gross. <laughs> And if you're going to be anybody's torture fanboy, it's got to be Andre Kosciusko. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah. yeah, the most notorious pain master in the entire inventory. And so because Wit has got all of this money, uh, he has been making himself over. Um, he's had ribs reshaped. He's had bones in his fingers shaved. He's had the color of his eyes changed with a surgical implantation. He's had his voice box surgically altered so that from having been a man, a natural baritone, uh, his speaking voice has been raised into a tenor range, which is more consistent with Andre's. And at the same time, he's had voice coaches in to teach him formal Dolgaruki syntax, and he's had his mansions made over to be consistent with that of a Dolgaruki aristocrat, and it just uh, just goes on and on and on. The man is a maniac. He does have two reasons for this. One of them is, or I should say that, that this uh, obsession is useful in more than one way. Uh, his primary obsession is simply his obsession. And the closest that he can come himself to Andre Kosciusko specifically, the happier he is. Uh, it, just, it just really satisfies his personal uh, aspirations, although he himself does not torture people. He simply purchases choice records from black markets and then shares them with especially valued friends like Daniel Pafisk. So that's his primary uh, motivation to uh, remaking himself as Andre Kosciusko's A number one fan groupie. And the other thing, though, that it does is that everybody knows this. I mean, actually, after all, you can see it. You can see pictures of Chancellor Witt when he was a young man versus what he looks like now. You can tell just visually what he's doing. Um, and so you know that the man is a nutcase. And a, uh, a powerful rich man who is also a slightly ridiculous nutcase is uh, someone that you don't take as seriously as perhaps you ought. So his obsession does kind of extend to some 
some operant behavior. That's more more kind of like a a nice side effect, though, than his primary um, motivation. Yeah. Well, in the novel, he wants to collect. He's a collector at heart, and he wants to collect Andre. That's certainly what Daniel Pafisk believes, and it's certainly consistent with everything that anybody knows about Chancellor Witt. I'd just like to take this opportunity to briefly mention as a um, uh, as a lesson uh, dearly bought that if you are going to, if there is any chance that a character in your novel is going to be continuing into other novels or short stories, um, I suggest very strongly that you do not name the character something like Pathisked, because Pathisked looks good on paper. I enjoyed it. I didn't realize I was going to have to talk about uh, Daniel Pathisked. And so yeah. I, I really recommend that people keep this in mind. Okay, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's a... Uh... Or don't title your first novel on Labyrinth Station, which is very hard to say. <laughs> so, um, so uh, which was David Weber's thing. Um, so Daniel, uh, he's a sort of disgraced or, or fired or let go um, inquisitor, and he's been sent by Chancellor Witt to pretend to help out with the Langsericks, and actually he's he's um, he's got a nefarious plot against Andre in his venal way. He does indeed. And what, the, what is his relationship with, um, with uh, Ifit Curran, right? This is another character that shows up. It's a new character. Um, are, are, are we thinking about Jostler Curran from uh, the beginning or his relationship with... <laughs> Maybe if it's not uh, the 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 bond involuntary that just decides to go to gone beyond even just to get to Andre so he can get that governor out yeah yes that's Janforth I think okay sorry and and this is a good opening for me to talk a little bit about one of the interesting things that's happening here and now as it were uh, in crimes against humanity there are nine judiciaries under jurisdiction uh, each of them is functioning at this time as one member of what has become a confederated state. And this means that each of those nine judiciaries now has more autonomy than it did just 10 years ago uh, to make up its own mind about what it thought uh, the legal codes and uh, jurisprudence and so on and so forth ought to be. Well, I mentioned that Chancellor Witt was in Hasperzak Judiciary. That's kind of sort of approximately where um, the prequel or the uh, short story that uh, uh, is on the Bain website about Chancellor Witt takes place. It takes place where um, Daniel Pafisk's <laughs> uh, ship of assignment, uh, Sonderkit, is at Hasperzak Judiciary and the judge presiding at Hasperzak doesn't like Inquisition, and she never has liked Inquisition. And so she has decided that as a cost-saving measure only, mind you, this has got nothing to do with any personal 
uh, emotional feelings about torturing people. As a cost-saving measure, she is canceling the entire program forthwith. There will be no more ship's inquisitors. Uh, there will be no more bond and voluntaries. This determination on her part, strictly cost-cutting measure, mind you, has got two uh, repercussions that are really important in the novel, Crimes Against Humanity. The first one of them is that she is canceling the entire program, so there are no more ship's inquisitors. Uh, what's important about that is that I talked briefly uh, already about why you made bond and voluntary security slaves, the way in which you recruit doctors to perform torture is by giving them wealth and power that would otherwise be unavailable to them uh, by making them automatic senior medical officers on board, automatic chief medical officer, ship's inquisitor. So they go directly from somebody who probably doesn't have very many prospects of getting a good job based on their own medical qualifications to somebody who is the senior medical officer on board of a jurisdiction battle wagon. Um, Daniel is one of these people, and he is told at the beginning of the novel that he is out a job. He will now be placed in a medical specialty based on his actual medical qualifications rather than the fact that he has a writ to inquire. And uh, what this means is that he is immediately busted to private e-zip, uh, as it were. Uh, this is his motivation for um, deciding to simply leave and get out into Gone Beyond, where he can still find people who are willing to pay a very great deal of money for somebody who will perform the tasks that he has learned. That's one of the repercussions. The other one is that the bond and voluntaries that were signed to Daniel Pafisk on the jurisdiction fleet ship Sonderkit. Those are all to be immediately redeemed. And so they are all taken off of Sonderkit and they're all taken to the nearest uh, bench remediation center to have their governors surgically removed and to have all of the resources that fleet can provide dedicated to teaching them how to be free men again. But there's got to be one in every bunch, and in Sonderkit's bunch, there's one man, his name is Janforth, who just can't wait. These people have all been provided with what is called a safe that they can wear until the governor can be surgically removed. A safe is something that will transmit a signal that will tell the governor to just go to sleep. Uh, effect, effectively taking the governor offline. Janforth can't wait. He simply can't. He's got to get out. He's got to get out now. So Janforth turns up in Gone Beyond Space. He turns up at the Siege of Kuvarain because that is where Andre Kosciusko is. And he wants Andre Kosciusko because he knows, and a lot of people do, the gossip like this spreads quickly that one of the things that Andre has done in his checkered past is precisely to remove people's governors. Uh, so Janforth has uh, come to uh, Gone Beyond Space to get this favor from Andre. Um, and Janforth arrives uh, at Kuvarain, 
not too very much before Daniel Pafisk, on his mission to collect Andre for Chancellor Witt, arrives again at Couverain. Um And since uh, Daniel Pafisk liked to take advantage of bond and voluntaries, there's a lot of tension in that uh, uh, in that situation uh, for everybody to attempt to manage. Um, and interestingly enough, I thought, yeah. I've got my security chief, Stildine, and I like Stildine, but Stildine was no better than he ought to have been before he ran into Andre Kosciuszko. And it turns out that Stildine and Janforth have their own past to complicate matters. Well, the um, I mean, that's what happens to a lot of people that run into Andre, is they end up being better people um, in the end. He's, he has a habit of... of pushing people and figuring out things about them, and that's what makes him a good torturer, but it's also something that makes him a good friend and, and sort of um, leader and mentor as well among these, this group. Um, one other character that, that is new in the book is Meredith Riggs, um, and she's sort of a interesting outsider viewpoint of all this that's going on, right? Um, yes, she is. Um, Meredith is... Uh is completely outside all of the intricate uh, situations under jurisdiction because um, Medith's people, they're New Rail, she is New Rail, and her people got away from jurisdiction uh, a generation ago. So it was Medith's parents' generation that got into Gone Beyond and became free. Uh, so Medith herself was raised free um, in a, a resource-constrained environment uh, where, for instance, all the cargo handling equipment is really dilapidated and in need of constant maintenance and so on and so forth. And that's the world that she knows, um, and she has never had to operate under all of the administrative weight of jurisdiction. Um, so I like her a lot. She's a, she's a very, she's a very tall woman. She's a very strong woman, um, because she went into cargo management and because the equipment is equipment is so old. One of the things that people in cargo management end up doing is trying to maneuver these large cargo movers without, um, automatic steering. So a person gets, uh, Get strong. A person gets muscles. Uh, Medis got a sweetie. She and her sweetie don't see each other very often, but uh, they still manage to keep it going. Um, and at one particular point, Medis uh, intersected with uh, the. Um, I started calling the Wolf Pack because former bond and voluntary security slaves once assigned to Andre Kosciuszko, really got to be tiresome to type and read and so on and so forth. So I started calling them, uh, started calling them the wolf pack. And Medith happened by chance to intersect with the wolf pack uh, in one of the novellas that's in that Bain omnibus uh, fleet insurgent. Um, it's called, uh, the, it's the novella called Stalking Horse, I think. 
And um, she kind of minds her own business. She knows when to mind her own business. She's not afraid to speak her mind in an appropriate manner at the appropriate time. She, she's not, she doesn't mouth off in any sense of the word. She has more self-respect than that. And um, the wolves decided that they kind of liked her maybe, but that they also were a good fit for the kinds of things that the uh, wolf pack got up to with Thula. And so over the course of, I think it's been two years now, Medis and the wolf pack, they have developed a, a relationship, and Medis has, uh, has gained uh, more, re- more experience uh, loading and unloading that particular courier than anybody else in Gambiad has got. So she's, you know, she's really developing her career uh, in cargo management. Um, I know where she uh, ends up as her career progresses, um, but for now she's a young woman, um, she's still collecting experiences, and she has um, she has her chance to uh, embrace or avoid a potentially really unpleasant experiences in this novel, Crimes Against Humanity. And she she makes the courageous and uh, uh, imaginative decision to uh, encounter situations that she will never encounter again, even though they are much more unpleasant as it happens than she could have imagined. So she's um, she's intelligent, uh, she's adventurous, she's forthright. I like her. I guess you could tell that. <laughs> yeah, she's a really good way of looking at Andre. It's from somebody that hasn't hasn't known him and uh, is beginning to interact with him as well. So. And, and doesn't particularly care. She doesn't. She she's never been exposed to the whole Andre Kosciusko mythos. As far as she is concerned, he is the most frequent passenger on that courier. So, uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed her her take on things. Yeah, and finally, the other um, characters we see again are Jill's uh, Ivers and Bat Yorick, um, who we met, I think, in the previous book. Who uh, Bat was? Um, we, we didn't think we'd like him, but it turned out we did. Um, <laughs> But they are—they're um, sort of like judiciary, um, the 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 bench people who are keeping an eye on what the Langsrigs are up to and trying to figure out what this means for restructuring the jur- jurisdiction and and such or something like that. It's what are they doing? Kind of in the place, uh, especially Jills and uh, Carol Vogel, who. Uh, comes in and out of uh, this particular novel uh, only at very small intervals. They're kind of in the place of uh, representing the fact that uh, jurisdiction isn't monolithic and that for every nut job like or nut case like uh, Daniel Pafisk, there are people who are focused on the, uh, the good part of the rule of law and the judicial order and the public welfare. Um, because you got both kinds under jurisdiction. Um, it's a, uh, a society that includes all kinds of different people. Um, bench intelligence specialists, their situation is kind of anomalous, but that's not important for, for this discussion. Um, and yes, Carol Vogel has been convinced uh, for a long time now that 
that there is a tenth judiciary to be made out of Gombeon space. Jils is um, technically still primarily identified with one of the judiciaries, as is another bench intelligence specialist uh, who uh, may have a, a name check in Crimes Against Humanity named uh, Irenia Raffenkel. Uh, so Jils is pursuing uh, re- re- formal relations with something in Gone Beyond that could be represented as as being in a position to open formal relations. Jills is engaged in that on behalf of the judge at Hasperzak Judiciary, who shares Carol Vogel's conviction that Gandhian space can be a new model of government and they need one. Uh, so so Jills is going out to Gandhian. Um, and I, I did kind of mention a little earlier, I think, that uh, uh, since this, things are changing, um, the uh, the judge at Hasperzak has made some decisions. One of the other things that's really changing is that under jurisdiction, uh, it has long been an assumption or a prejudice that the law is sacred and requires the highest intellectual abilities to handle it at its uppermost levels. And uh, and I'll have to ask to be pardoned for the fact that this is actually rather sexist on my part. It has been long a conviction uh, under jurisdiction that men are simply too emotional, rash, um, and um, impulsive to handle the law at the highest level. Uh, nobody ever wrote that down. That's, that's no. That's that's not codified. You won't find that written down anywhere. It's simply a prejudice that grew up over a long, 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 long time until uh, there has not been a bench-level judge that is not female for quite some time. There has been one or two, or excuse me, there have been one or two that people can remember, but uh, they're so few and far in between as to be almost uh, mythical or legendary or apocryphal. So one of the things that the judge at Hasperzak has done is identified an extremely able young judge and placed him in the position of a bench judge. So, so Bat is one of the first men to be... Uh, administering the law at its increasingly senior most levels for for a bit, for maybe two or three generations, actually. Uh, so the, uh, I think she's the eighth judge or third judge, at Hasperzak Judiciary, she's got a lot invested in that Jorvik, and she firmly believes that he has what it takes and that Bat is her best opportunity to break out of the stereotype that men can't do good law at at mm-hmm. senior levels. Um, so we're sending Bat Jorvik to Gombeon Space. Jill's Ivers' mission is to identify someone in Gombeon Space to 
open, formal, uh, exploratory relationships with in order to further the, uh, the global uh, mission of recognizing Gambiand as its own form of government. So that's a lot of fun, too, and I like that. Yeah, yeah. And they're, then, of course, they get involved with all the other uh, goings-on. And, uh, and the heart of the novel is this encounter with the old believers and, and what gets um, what transpires there as well. So um, what um, I guess we've uh, we've covered a lot and it's um, it's it's just a wonderful, amazingly uh, um, rich and textured um, science fiction world that, that you've created and you've been doing it for a long time now. you've been in, in jurisdiction. Um, under jurisdiction for a while with a lot that you've written. Um, what, um, what, do you, what, what have you been working on lately? Um, my immediate realities are U-boats, actually. Um, and we published a big U-boat novella of yours last year. That's right. And also you published uh, an anthology uh I think it was originally Star Destroyers um, that has the first of the other kind of U-boat stories in it. Uh, and there's a connection between that story and uh, Crimes Against Humanity, actually, because um, a character was written for the uh, short story Skipjack in the Bane Anthology, uh, that was about um, that had to do with what was cl- clearly not a submarine in outer space because I wasn't going to try and do that, um, but about a submarine-like environment in outer space at the end of a long war, and uh, some of the characters were interesting, and one of them was named um, uh, Captain Belknap Fenroth, who was Finny Fenroth to his friends. Um, I've written another story in the same universe with the same characters, more or less. Um, and I'm enjoying Finney enough that uh, uh, he actually shows up on the dedication page for Crimes Against Humanity. So um, so right now, uh, where I'm getting my, uh, my sense of play, uh, my sense of excitement and happiness, it has to do with uh, a the um, ghost flotilla U-boats or U-boats out uh, unmoored in space and time, um, which is sort of basically about a situation in which uh, a particular U-boat, for instance, goes down in the Arctic Ocean in February of 1945 and comes up in Lake Superior in April or May of 2005, uh, creating considerable considerable perplexity in people's minds, especially when word is received that another U-boat has popped up in off the coast of uh, Brazil or uh, on its way to Argentina. And because these are U-boat people, they know that that other U-boat they just heard about um, went down off the coast of Africa in about 43. Uh, 
So that particular storyline, Ghost Flotilla U-Boat, is kind of like the Flying Dutchman in the Bermuda Triangle, but uh, as it pertains to U-Boats. And uh, <laughs> let's see here. In April, I'm going to go to Kiel in Germany to see the last most complete model of a 7C U-boat. They let you get up into it and climb around it, go through it. Um, I intend to be terrified because I'm claustrophobic. And then on the way home, uh, we'll stop over in Chicago to see the uh, the 9 C-stroke 40, I think it is. Uh, don't embarrass yourself, Susan. To see the U-boat uh, in Chicago. So. So right now, uh, but in my long-term planning under jurisdiction, uh, under jurisdiction, I have a persistent, just you know, little scene clip uh, in my head of one of the Bond involuntaries. It's a big blonde named Garrity. He's the one with the cyborg eye, and I'm just you know, kind of like seeing this camp that's essentially in the Everglades, sort of, kind of, essentially. Um, there's a, uh, a Dolgaruki, uh, intelligence operative. Uh, she's the one that Andre thinks of as Miss Crowned, like Crowned with the wheat wreath and so on and so forth. And, and here's Garrity holding an immense, uh, what you might call a catfish. He's on his way past Miss Crowned, and he is going to prepare this huge fish according to the ways of his people in order that she might eat from his hand, uh, or words to that effect. Uh, I don't know if anything ever come to that, but that's uh, kind of like a a hint in my own mind uh, about uh, jurisdiction novels of the future. Yeah, cool, cool. You're keeping place with that image. That's amazing, Um, the the mind of a writer. Meanwhile, you're obsessed with U-Boats from... (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. Well, um, thanks for talking about all this with us, Susan. Out now at Booksellers Everywhere is, um, is Crimes Against Humanity, which is book eight in the Under Jurisdiction series, um, a wonderful science fiction uh, sort of space opera saga that, um, that um, Susan has been working on for a long time, and it's full of um, just wonderful stories, wonderful characters, and incredibly uh, rich language as well. So, um, Susan, thank you so much for talking with us again. It's been my pleasure. I really like talking about, you know, my my story. Uh Bye, honey. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok 
but Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. He couldn't sleep. Not because of nerves, but rather because Pakpa snored. Her wheezing sounded like the giant machines at the workers' foundry on the other side of the military district's wall. How can someone so beautiful snore like an elephant? Not that Jagdish minded that Pakpa snored and constantly rolled around in her sleep. Gentle as an ox, shaking their small, flimsy bed and occasionally scratching him with her toenails. Because her positive traits far outweighed those few negatives. As a warrior of low birth, he'd expected his arranged marriage to be to an ugly, stupid woman. But he'd gotten lucky. The workers had traded one of their loveliest daughters to his caste for additional security on a trade route, and Jagdish had been single and recuperating from his wounds, and thus available in time to sign the Arbiter's Treaty. So it had all worked out. Even his arranged marriage had been meant as an insult, marrying him off to a baker's daughter instead of a proper strong woman of the warrior caste who'd provide him with superior sons. His children would be looked down upon as half-caste. Only he liked coming home to Pakpa's warm smile and kind words, and he had no doubt she'd provide him with many wonderful children. Jagdish had actually come to love his wife, and she seemed fond enough of him. So he didn't want to die tomorrow. He must have sighed because Pakpa snorted herself awake and rolled over. Huh? What's wrong? I can't sleep. How come? She sounded confused. Was I snoring? The sisters always accused me of snoring. All he could see in the dark was her lovely general outline, but he had no problem picturing her beautiful face. No, your sisters lied because they're jealous. You sleep like a songbird, delicately perched in a tree. He thought about telling her what he was going to attempt, to better both of their lives, but he didn't want to make her worry. Go back to sleep. Pakpa rolled back over. Oh, I love you. She was snoring again within a few seconds. Jagdish resumed staring at the ceiling beams, pondering dueling and death. The next morning, Jagdish watched the man he feared the most easily defeat one of the best warriors in the world. Their guest was announced at the gatehouse as Swordmaster Nadan Somsak Darthau, from their mountainous southern neighbor, who had won high status through countless victories, until he'd become the Thakur of a vassal family. His skin was covered in tattoos designed to strike fear in his enemies, and he had a herald to read off a list of all the warriors he'd bested. He'd hired musicians to play drums, and was even accompanied by an arbiter, who announced that his travel papers had been approved by Chief Judge Harter himself. So Nadan Somsak had showed up with an entourage, legal standing, a great deal of fanfare, and a chip on his shoulder. He walked to the center of the prison yard, 
spread his ink-covered arms wide and shouted, Bring me the fallen protector so that I may defeat him. I have come to claim Mangruvadal as my own. I will destroy the criminal and the whole world will sing praises to my name. He's a cocky one, said one of the guards. I've got ten notes says the Blackheart beats him in under two minutes. You're on, but only because he'll slow down to give that tattooed mountain thug some pointers. All of the prison staff who could temporarily escape their duties had climbed the walls and towers to watch the duel. Jagdish noted that they were all making bets, but not a single one was betting on the challenger. But rather on how long he'd last, or whether his life would be spared or not. The prisoner might have been the vilest form of criminal, but he was their criminal. Havildar Watt was his second in command, and he joined Jagdish on the wall. I've gone to fetch the prisoner. He reached beneath one of the lamellar plates of his armor and pulled out a watch on a chain. With your permission, sir, I'll keep time. That way none of the men get into fights over who loses the bet. A timepiece, small enough to fit in a pocket, was rare and expensive. How did you afford that, what? The young warrior grinned. My winnings from betting on these duels, Rosalda. You see, there are marks for every minute of the day. It's supposed to be very accurate. Jagdish had to squint, and even then he had a hard time seeing anything that small. Remarkable. The drummer was beating a steady cadence. The man from Thau was still shouting below them. Bring me the traitor Ashok so that I may cut his throat and spill his castless blood. The horse-spawned abomination must pay for the curse he's brought upon this weak people. What's his problem? What asked. The Somsak were a small house renowned for their skill, supposedly some of the best mountain fighters in the world, Jagdish explained. Then a winter plague came through a few generations back and wiped out most of their army. Thau moved quick and invaded while they were weak. I suppose all those farmers were tired of being raided and decided to finish it once and for all. They say the Somsek bearer single-handedly held a mountain pass while fighting five hundred Thau warriors. But his ancestor blade shattered on the very last one's shield. They've been a vassal house ever since. That's quite the story, sir. I've no idea if it's true or not, but the Somsek think it is. Still no reason to make an arse of himself. While the challenger continued his rant, the guards opened a gate at the far end of the yard, and black-hearted Ashok entered. There were no drums, heralds, or fanfare. He seemed far calmer than the night Jagdish had first seen him. Nadan Somsak turned and saw Ashok coming. I smell the ocean. It must be a castless. He hawked and spit in the dirt. The drummer quit playing and hurried out of the way. Come here, so I can crack open your skull and wipe my ass with your brains. Look at you. You're nothing. I can't believe this is the castless scum who made the protectors into a bunch of dupes and fools. Ashok tilted his head to the side. 
Since he didn't bother to raise his voice, it was difficult to hear what he was saying from up on the wall. My life is of no value. I have no status, so you are allowed to insult me freely. But it is illegal to slander an approved order, so please refrain from maligning the protectors. Their protectors are a bunch of stuck-up idiots, all swagger, no heart, no balls, and wouldn't be worth salt water if they didn't have the capital to prop them up. All the protectors could be castless, as far as I know. You're just the only one dumb enough to admit it. It wouldn't surprise me if the lot of them had been sired by demons and squeezed out of whores. I piss on the protectors. The warrior from Thau had succeeded in provoking the prisoner's anger, and black-hearted Ashok's emotionless mask slipped just a bit, giving Jagdish a glimpse of the man he'd fought that night in the main hall of Great House Fadal. Hey, what? I'll bet you 200 notes against that little timepiece of yours that from the time the prisoner draws his sword to winning, you can't count to ten. The young warrior was happy to take advantage of his naive commander. You're on, Rosalda. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an interplanetary submarine unmoored from space-time with settings for instantaneous travel to only three places, Sweden, Zimbabwe, and Barnard Star, plus thanks, praise, and plaudits for Susan R. Matthews, author of Crimes Against Humanity. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>